Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since last week? I've been very well, Gary, thank you. And how are you? I've been good. And I hope our listeners have been good as well, or at least they've been doing well. Well, I hope they're both doing well and doing good. It might shock you to know that we have more than two listeners. I'm delighted. <laughs> I can hear it. I can hear the delight in your voice. Now, speaking of delights, Michael, so we will be talking about the letter that was sent in to two government ministers from uh, the CPSMA, uh, which is a group which provides kind of guidance, advice, help to principals of Catholic schools. I think they also do work with the, the uh, boards of management of those schools. We're not going to go into a lot about what the letter said or didn't say or the initial response to it, because that's been covered. We more want to talk about some of the the wider context of it, um, some of the, the broader ideas and where this actually fits into society. So they sent a letter in to two of our fine, fine government ministers about the teaching of certain aspects of transgenderism uh, and certain aspects of what might be called gender ideology to primary school children, basically saying that they had concerns about it, they had concerns about various aspects of it. And I believe that letter was sent to the ministers in January at some time, I think late January, or at least that's what some of the papers have said. And it leaked during the week and created a bit of a shitstorm. It ended up drawing in the Thonishta, the Thishok, the President, many, many media figures, many, many other TDs, many, many other organizations, and really was of such a scope that I imagine it was quite surprising, well, to pretty much everyone involved. It kind of took on a life of its own. I haven't seen the actual letter. I've seen fragments of it reported in most of the media organizations. I would suspect a lot of the media organizations talking about the letter have not seen the letter either. Uh, but we're going to try and keep ourselves to the content that's been publicly released, Michael, as opposed to making broad, sweeping, general uh, denouncements, which seems to have been the standard play on this. Yeah, God forbid we'd ever do such a thing. I'm not you know, adverse to the odd public denouncement. You know, strip someone naked and run them through the streets for public humiliation because they've been wrong. But it's, oh, it's got to be the right people, Michael. The most Interesting comment, though, I saw was from Michal Martin, Michael. And I don't know if you saw this one. Michal Martin said that the letter was an improper way to handle the situation. Which is to say that Michal Martin said that an organisation which is involved uh, with those who are managing Catholic primary schools, 90-something percent of the country's education, or primary schools, should not write to the ministers overseeing education policy and uh, children, equality, that sort of stuff, to say they have concerns. That just... I'm not quite sure what Michal Martin would have liked them to do other than possibly, you know, shut the fuck up. Well, I think the first thing he would have liked them to do is, in fact, shut the fuck up. I think that would have been his primary piece of advice on this. Um, I think if they steadfastly refused to take that sage advice, then I think he would have been much, much happier if he had, they had behaved in such a way that this hadn't come into the public sphere. So that you got the high polloi and the sweaty masses actually starting to read about this and think about this, because that's not what you want. You don't want people getting involved in this kind of issue. This should be left to the experts, by which mean I mean Michal Martin and Leo and whoever, and Roderick et al. And they're, they're chums because they're obviously the people who have 
in the best position to make this kind of decision. You don't want parents getting involved in the education of their children, Gary. I mean, what do they know about education? Or what do they know about these issues? Then just bring their prejudices and their nonsenses with them, you know. And then it'll, you'll have a debate and people will be ringing up the radio and Kira Kelly will start saying things. And, oh, it'll, it'll, it, it, and he was right. Absolutely, that's what's happened. It's all a horrible mess. One thing I have found quite interesting about the backlash to this letter is this. The primary school curriculum is being updated. I understand that is finished, but it hasn't been publicly released, which is not to say that people don't have copies of it. Because, Michael, people absolutely have copies of it. But to, that's not something that most of the journalists talking about this would have seen. It's definitely not something that most of the people very irate about this on social media and Reddit would have seen. So, in large part, this is people talking about things or about a curriculum which they have not seen. Which you would think, Michael, would cause some people to be a bit circumspect about what they're saying. Or to maybe display some level of well, I'm not sure exactly what's happening here. That is a naive assumption, I understand, but I like to, I like to believe the best of people, Michael. Well, who would have thought that the, uh, the, the organisation that sent the letter would have had some kind of access to the NCAA's proceedings and they have a fair decent idea what's actually going on in the, uh, the proposed reforms to the curriculum that the National Council of Curriculum Assessment has developed. So I, I imagine that they are working from some level of knowledge and understanding, a greater level of knowledge and understanding that you or I or indeed the general public have. Like I don't think the letter that they sent was sent just off the bat, just for the sake of it. I must say, I find all of this new curriculum stuff incredibly off-putting because people are saying things like, well, it's time to give children a bigger say in how they learn. I love the line which, is, which has been doing the rounds, which, is, which says that, it has developed the new curriculum and it puts a strong focus on the importance of child agency. Irish primary education is stepping into a new era. Pupils will have a big say in how they learn, says Catherine O'Donnelly in The Irish Independent. Now, Gary, have we not tried this already? Has this not been going on for God more than 100 years in various instance iterations in progressive education? And have we not learned that it doesn't work? Well, Michael, it depends what you mean when you say work. I mean, does it produce good outcomes? The research I've seen would tend to suggest no, not compared to more traditional forms of education. I was reading a piece in The um, Independent, actually, by their education correspondent. And you just this idea of pupils having a big say in how they learn, it suggests that they should be able to go to the teacher and suggest alternative ways of doing so, <laughs> of, of teaching the subject, Michael, and yeah. that the students should expect a positive response from their teacher. And let us not forget one of the core principles of teaching here, Michael, the assumption that the educator knows more about the subject than the students. Sometime around 20 years ago, the Finns woke up one morning to discover that they're the best education system in the world, right? The Finns were, in the PISA rankings, they were scoring top uh, in reading, in arithmetic, in all sorts of just, Finnish education was just tip-top and fantastic and wonderful. At which point, the Finns started to become incredibly anxious and neurotic, having not really thought about their education system at all. It was just that was the way they did it. They suddenly became terribly obsessed and worried about it because it was the best in the world. And, oh, my God, what do we do? Anyway, 
One of the things that they discovered was that when you surveyed students on their experience of school, of their experience of going to school and their relationship with their teachers, that Finnish students, in comparison, say, to students in Sweden, didn't enjoy going to school as much. They didn't look forward to it as much. They didn't like their teachers. They didn't have as much fun or engagement in the day that other that students say had in Sweden. In the basis, so the Finnish, there are a certain number of Swedish schools in Finland. For there's a, there's a small Swedish speaking minority. So they decided to do a, a, a study on a, the Swedish model is 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 much less formal uh, than the, the the Finnish model is kind of traditional in its form, kind of what they call a sage on the stage rather than guide at the side. Forgive me, this is the language used in pedagogy. Actually, physically just grimaced. <laughs> anyway, Finnish models, which were sort of line, people in lines and rows and putting their hand up and not doing lots of group work and sage on the stage kind of thing. So they set about, and they did, they looked at a kind of a mixed model and they did some in Swedish schools and the Swedish schools in Finland, and then they did so. Anyway, at the end of it all, they found that in, in this new approach, this new nicer approach, that the students actually imported uh, much better engagement. They were more, they looked forward to going to school. They had a better experience. It was all very positive. Anyway, there was an interview being done in one of the Finnish newspapers with, and I, I can't find this piece of research, it was a fantastic thing, with the, uh, a, the guy who was regarded as being the, the guy in Finnish education, some professors in the University of Helsinki. And they said, so it was a great success. And he said, well, yes. I mean, now, it, and this speaks to your point about what you're looking for. He said, well, yes. I mean, as I say, they showed much better results of engagement and enjoyment and anticipation and all that. However, if what you cared about was their ability to read, write, or do algebra, no, it wasn't a success. So the question you ask is, indeed, whether and what it is you want to choose. It has become a kind of a dictum, and I can understand why, because it makes sense to me that children who are happy and relaxed going to school and look forward to going to school and enjoy the experience of going to school and enjoy their education are going to learn more easily, they will, they will have a better learning experience, better outcomes than children who don't like going to school, who don't look forward to it, who find the thing a grind. But it turns out, at least from some of the studies, this study that was done in Finland, that you actually don't have to enjoy going to school to get an education. It sounds odd and counterintuitive, maybe. Or not, it doesn't fit in with the way we like to see the world, but that was the experience there. Now, a bigger, broader, longer study might show something else, but certainly that assumption uh, is not on it on the face of it not necessarily one we should just accept but i it's almost like gary in a weird way and may, maybe this just sounds stupid it's almost like these people are platonists in the sense that they believe all you have to do the kids have in their heads all of the stuff they need and we just have to tease it out we have to find a way of producing rather than saying no you have to actually be taught stuff now for example one of the big changes that's happened in education is the idea that rather than teaching them facts and stuff, rote learning, Gary, rote learning we know is a very, very bad thing. Bad. Rote learning, bad. And people talk about rote There's so much less rote learning in Ireland. Uh, I don't even cross the Western world in comparison to even 20 years ago, let alone 50 or 60. I mean, and yet people still talk about it like, as if we had grad grind in schools here. So but the idea is you teach them skills. 
and you teach them critical methods. You try to get, because we want to carry it to children to think critically. That's the important thing. Teach children to think. So, for example, in Holland, they did it, they attempted to teach history basically without content. They, they said, we're going to just teach people how to do history. Now, there is a certain, there's a value it's some of that idea in the sense that you teach people how to look at documents, how to go to a library or to an archive or to a museum to find information out, how to look at a census or how to look at uh, tidal plots, whatever it happens to be. But what they discovered after a few years of doing it is you can't teach history without content. And one of the central things that came out, and I remember there was an educational psychologist said to me once, one thing we know about critical thinking is this. You can't think critically about something that you don't know anything about. And he, the example he said to me, you ask a six-year-old child to, to talk critically about sweets or ice cream, and they will actually be able to do it. Because many six-year-old children have a deep understanding and interest in ice cream, and they will be able to think critically about it and talk critically about it. But if you give them something they know nothing about, they have no capacity to think or talk critically about it. So it turns out you actually have to teach them stuff. And that's not something that sort of, shall we say, the most progressive pedagogues really like to do because it's kind of fascistic. Actually, on the topic of uh, critical thinking, just an interesting little side note here. One of the ways that universities sell themselves and their importance in the public space is not by saying that they upskill people, Michael, because that's terrible and capitalistic and education for the purpose of getting a job is, is you know, not what we want to say we do. They say they do things like improve critical thinking, which is very interesting because there's actually very little research done on whether or not universities do actually increase critical thinking. And the research that is there indicates that outside of the top performers – who, let's be honest, Michael, are the people you'd expect to improve naturally anyway, going to university actually does not improve critical thinking. Why, why would it? I mean, I'm not being sarky, but why would it in this sense? There is a strong disincentive to you as a student, unless you're like it's you know, seriously gifted kind of. If you're doing a degree in history or English or whatever, there's a strong, there's a strong disincentive for you to... to to disagree with your lecturers. Why would you do that? Why would you go out and they tell you something, you off, you think critically about it, you decide that they're wrong and you're Because I can tell you, the notion that Midland students can write essays disagreeing with their lecturers and not suffer a, a, a little bit of a grade, I think is a naive. One of the reasons I bring it up is just because it's important to remind people that universities are trying to sell you things as well. And oftentimes because it agrees with them, they're not going to actually look into whether or not what they're saying is true, which is on the face of it actually quite amusing. The other is that a lot of what we've seen, Michael, on this more sort of your parents should be your best friend school of teaching, which is what I informally think of it as, is this whole thing on equipping children with the thinking needed to deal with a complex world and to think, you know, critical thinking and things of that nature. But the research on how to improve critical thinking is fairly bare bones. And I would be kind of shocked if most of these schools could do it. Partially, Michael, and this is not based on research, this is just my own personal view, that you're right. You need a critical level of knowledge about certain areas in order to be able to critically analyze them. In the same way, a lot of critical thinking is actually just temperament. 
and a certain, shall we say, Michael, humility towards knowledge. There's a critical mass of act of simp of information that you have to have before you can start to think critically about any subject. And I would say to to your to the listeners, just if you reflect on your own your own life, your own experience of life, those things that you are most comfortable critically thinking about are the things that you know most about. I I I've been going to hurling matches since I was a very small child. I watch it. I can look at, it, but I've never played hurling. I've never been in. I had a hurl as a child, which I I, I it was a a toy that I used to hit tennis balls against a wall. That was, I stopped doing that at the age of six. So my real understanding of like watching a game and understanding the, the tactics and the movement and all that are very limited. I have much more capacity to look at a game of tennis, which I played horrendously badly, but I played a hell of a lot of it. I watched and consumed a huge amount of it. And I can look at a tennis game and I have a, sense, I have a certain capacity to think about what's going on there. And we're talking about pre- things that are just, pl- or shall we say, plastic mechanical skills there. But then again, if you're talking about something more abstract, like if we're talking about the specific in- issue at hand, first of all, I would say, well, how are... First, certainly, how are children going to help out teachers explain what it means to be trans and sexual identity? Leaving that nonsense aside, Gary, if you ask a teacher that this is this is going to be part of their their job now, is to sensitively explain and and help children understand things like gender identity, what it means to be trans, what it means to be non-binary, and all that. When how many people do you know to do that? In a reasonable way. Well, that is actually something which is usually not discussed when we're talking about policy, particularly in relation to education. There's what the government writes that policy is, and there's what teachers are actually both comfortable and capable of delivering to their students. And oftentimes there is a surprising gap between those two things. Interestingly, on the primary school curriculum, we do know that it's backed away from certain concepts that the LGBT groups would have liked in, primarily the T, in relation to gender. I believe an earlier draft of the curriculum said things about there being many genders, Michael. And stuff like that, where the concern is that that's not a fact, that's a belief. And if you put that in, well, how can you back that up? And my understanding is that's been softened. But I, I just, this article, by the way, this is in The Independent, I'll put a link to it, where they're talking about the children being able to do these things. I just wanted to read you some of it, Mike, because I don't think you've seen it. So they're talking about the, the structural reforms and how they're, you know, they're going to take time. What's less obvious, but has the potential to be the most innovative and exciting aspect of the changes, is the role it gives the pupils to direct their own learning. The official word for it is agency, a person's capacity to make decisions and to act. It's about choice and flexibility. The UN Convention on the Rights of the Child states children have a right to be active participants in all matters affecting their lives. The NCCA, which has developed the new curriculum, puts a strong focus on the importance of child agency. Everyone in the education system, particularly children, teachers and school leaders, need to be made aware that they have agency and feel empowered to exercise their agency, it states. 
Giving children agency in their learnings sits with the imperative to equip them for the changing and challenging world in which they live. The curriculum advisory body notes that children's lives beyond their schooling will necessitate them having a strong sense of their agency. It points to many changes they will face, including climate change and social justice, adding that having a sense of agency should enable people and adults to act decisively with due regard to the rights of other people. So... What will child agency in the primary classroom look like? The possibilities are endless and limited only by the imaginations of children. I think that's a horrifying thing to write. Also, massive overstep of the position of schools and and what they should actually do in society. I'm fairly old-fashioned on this, Michael. I think if we're going to put in place things to train teachers and educate teachers and equip them as best we can to deal with children... We should not then put them in the trawl of children to direct their own education, considering that most children would probably very happily eat a bucket of paste rather than learn. And this goes back to your explanation of what we saw in uh, one of the Nordic countries. There is the short-term joy of children, and there is equipping them with the skills and education to succeed in their life. And those are not the same thing. In the long term, the things you will need are things that in the short term are unpleasant sometimes. That's my problem with this whole parents should be your friend thing. You should not be their friend. You are not their friend. They are not your peer. You have a responsibility to them in the same way that teachers do, although obviously not as expansive in the case of teachers. And oftentimes that's not going to be letting them do things they think are fun. And it just seems like we've totally rejected that possibility that you may actually have obligations and responsibilities to a child, which a child may not like. But then again, a child probably doesn't want to go to school at all if it's not basically a playground. My mate Julie Gannon, Lord of Mercy, and her had a, her, I, I probably told, I may have told this before, but it, her cousin Peter and her cousin Peter went to a very, very expensive, very, very progressive school in England. His father was a senior officer in the Navy. And Julie was a couple of years younger. Peter at this stage, I think, was 11 or 12, maybe a bit older. Anyway, Julie was a few years younger than him. And they were at, it was one, her, his father was home and was having a conversation at the tea table about some book that he'd seen Julie reading and he he asked Peter some question about it and Julie piped up, oh but uncle Peter can't read to which uncle said, well don't be silly of course Peter can read I'm paying 6,000 guineas a year or whatever the hell it was, maybe 600 guineas a year at the time because it's a long time ago that of course he could read and transpired Peter couldn't read the school he went to work to the basis that children were allowed to direct their own learning so if they wanted to come into class they could come into class if they wanted to stay out in the playground and play they could stay or they could go to the sandbox or whatever it was and it turned out that Peter had been in school for some years and had never got so bored in the sandbox that he'd actually decided to come in and learn he had directed his own learning Gary and he had used his agency to become very expert in the construction of elaborate sand castles. At which point, his horrified father whipped him out of that school and sent him to some kind of grind school in a desperate attempt to see if he could get him to qualify to go to whatever the school is you go to, to get into the Naval College in England. And after, I think, a year and a half of basically being absolutely 
grat grinding, old fashioned Victorian style learning. He he learned how to read and to write and to do songs, to scrape into the school, which he then scraped out of and went to become an officer. But where, where, I mean, I'd love to know on what res- what empirical research, not mathematical modelling, but empirical research, not sociological or philosophical discourse based on Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which, God love me, I did my dissertation on in college, but actual empirical evidence, which tells them that agency, whatever that a very amorphous idea is, is something that is required for people to go on in later life. And that you can, and indeed, that it is something that teachers can teach. And we're talking about primary school teachers here who tend to do a, an awful lot more, well, should we say, practical pedagogy when in their degree. They're, they do a B.Ed. rather than like a secondary school teacher. Like, but say talking about secondary school teachers, you go off and you do a degree in physics and maths, and then you do your HDIP, which most people who do HDIP will tell you it teaches you very little indeed. And then you're you're thrown into school and you think you're going to teach physics and maths, but no, you're going to be teaching agency and you're going to inform. But the reality is, Gary, do you not think that the fact is that because teachers will feel both uncomfortable and incompetent to do this, what will actually happen is what has happened in other jurisdictions. Spe- groups will be brought in to do courses in school. And there's the rub because we know who will be brought in to do the courses. This is a conversation that I think those involved in education policy on either the activist side or the school sides are actually somewhat ill-positioned to have for the very simple reason that it's seen as publicly unacceptable that they openly say a basic truth about the purpose of education, particularly primary education, but ahead of that as well. That being a very simple thing, the purpose of education is to indoctrinate. We don't like using that phrase because that phrase has negative connotations. So we instead say that the purpose of education is to socialize. But those are the same thing. That is why activists want this coming in at very young ages. It's why traditionally religious institutions have wanted control of education in certain aspects because they can then do faith formation at a very young age. For those who are concerned about that in Ireland, by the way, the Catholic Church, although technically running a lot of these schools at whatever length, objectively terrible at faith formation nowadays. Basically, no effective faith formation happens in most of the Catholic schools. It's just non-existent. It's part of why the church actually could very happily lose many of those schools and not really care about it because they're useless for that purpose. But you cannot say that if you are an educator or a civil servant or an activist because the second you say it, your opponents will say you're wrong, you're evil and you're manipulative. But that is what this fight in a lot of cases. Maybe not in this particular case because I don't want to speak the mind of the people involved. But that is a lot of the fight. And activists understand that. My suspicion, Gary, and that's its personal opinion, but my suspicion is if you took a survey of most parents and asked them what they wanted from their primary school, that they would say they wanted them to teach their children how to read and how to write, maybe to teach them some Irish, to teach them some history, to some geography, to tell them how to distinguish an oak tree from a sycamore or from an ash. And if they were able to leave primary school being comp- being literate and numerous, with a couple of, as I say, a, a couple of fuckle, 
and a basic understanding of geography and history and the history of their country and a sense of their identity that they would that was that would be the job done I think that if, on the other hand, you were to expose parents to a group of educators, shall we say, people like in the NCAA, and listen, and had them listening to what they think the purpose of the school is, the parents would be horrified. I think you're probably right about that. But I would make the point that I don't think that the modern education system, as we understand it, given how encompassing it is, can actually do that without also engaging in a degree of socialization. And even if you look historically at the place of schools, when they were much less consuming of the time of young people, there was still a very large degree of socialization. I don't doubt you're, I think you're right. I mean, famously, Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, the, um, the, the men in charge of many of the most elite schools across the world, famously said, give me the boy at seven and I will give you the man. Of course, there is an element, if you want to call it moral education, there's our catechesis that goes on in schools. The quibble quibble I would have with you, Gary, on the indoctrination is simply they said it's a question of transparency, if nothing else, that if parents are sending their children to school under certain patronage on the expectation, well, I'm sending my child to Catholic school, and therefore I expect that they will be exposed to a certain worldview or a certain ethos, then I think they have the right that that's what their children get. Because parents under the Irish constitution get to choose the moral education for their children. I think you're absolutely right, Michael. But my concern here is this. In much the same way I've said commonly, I don't think biased media is a problem. I think media that presents itself as neutral while using that to lower your scepticism to the bias they actually have is a problem. Yes. Honest uh, explanation of of where you stand is fine. But I don't think that's what we're going to see here. I don't think it's what activist groups want. I think activist groups have realised not just in Ireland, but across most of the world, that you can have a very public debate about something, or you can very quietly push for policies that would support your view. And if you can get into schools and convince people when they are young that your theories are not just correct, but so correct that they're simply unambiguously true and should not be questioned, well, Michael, you give yourself 20 years down the road, you're going to find that you have a much easier path to whatever you want to do. And there was a document I wanted to bring up that I don't think enough people are aware of, and I will include a link to this below so that people can read it. It was a document published in 2019 by a couple of of, of groups which are important. One was the uh, Thomson Reuters Foundation. There was a law firm called Denton's, which is a absolutely massive uh, multinational law firm. It is... One of the biggest in the world. I'm not sure if it's an exact size, but you're talking billions in revenue, uh, thousands upon thousands of employees with a group called the IGLYO. The report is called Only Adults, Good Practices in Legal Gender Recognition for Youth. It was a report on the current state of laws and NGO advocacy in eight countries in Europe with a focus on the rights of young people. It is particularly interesting because recently in relation to this letter, there was a debate on um, on RT Radio, and the people involved in that were the CEO of, uh, or sorry, a representative of the CPSMA, 
and the representative of belong to. Belong to are thanked by name in this report for helping put it together. But I just wanted to give people a couple of quotes from it, because I think this is quite illuminating. So as I said, this was basically put together both to look at what had happened in various countries, but also to nearly give a framework for how things could be done by groups in other areas that wanted to uh, have similar success. And Ireland is very much considered to have been a success from the perspective of um, of, um, transgender charities. So this document lists uh, good practices for NGO advocacy. And there's a load of stuff in it that I think is very interesting, like demedicalizing it, getting ahead of the government, trying to set the story by coming forward with draft legislation, things like that, Uh, actively using campaign or human rights as your campaign point rather than anything else. There's an interesting one, Michael, uh, tie your campaign to more popular reforms, where it talks about the Irish uh, marriage equality legislation. And basically says that um, the legal gender recognition, um, the the gender recognition act that we have was put through at the same time. And this provided a veil of protection, particularly in Ireland, where marriage equality was strongly supported. But gender identity remained a more difficult issue to win public support for. The next point, Michael, is is avoid excessive press coverage and exposure. I I I, I love the use of the word excessive there. Well, I mean, if you didn't use the word excessive, Michael, people could say things like, well, it sounds like you don't want people to know what you're doing. But when you put the word excessive in, that can mean anything. Yeah. But it quotes directly the Irish experience. But here's what they say. In Ireland, activists directly lobbied individual politicians and tried to keep press coverage to a minimum in order to avoid this issue. It's not exactly what you'd consider to be the template of the correct way to do things in a liberal democracy, is it? Where debate, discourse, dialectic, all transparency, these are the the key words that we like to use, the importance of a full and frank and open exchange of views, respectful opposition, etc., etc. Rather, it's rather shadowy. Yes, and here's a little bit more on Ireland, Michael, when they're talking about the Gender Recognition Act. And remember, this was written with the help of Belong To, who are currently the front people on a lot of the transgender stuff. The legislation went under the radar in Ireland because marriage equality was gaining the most focus. In a way, this was helpful, according to the activists, because it meant they were able to focus on persuading politicians that the change was necessary. This is a common technique that we have seen in many of the successful campaigns, and it was very effective in Ireland. Now, here are the reflections on the Irish experience getting the Gender Recognition Act passed, Michael. The most important lesson from the Irish experience is arguably that trans advocates can possibly be much more strategic by trying to pass legislation under the radar, by latching trans right legislation onto more popular legal reforms rather than taking more combative public-facing approach. Public-facing approach. Okay. So it kind of seems like, Michael, if you were taking that kind of approach where you wanted to influence but didn't ever want to have a debate, that you might push for things like, let's say, the inclusion of certain things on primary school curriculums, and you might push for them quite heavily, both directly and through other stakeholders, because doing that is helpful to you. In fact, you might do quite a lot of work 
that the public, not won't hear about Michael, but which you think the public shouldn't hear about. Yeah, the, the, the public. It's it's curious. I was actually talking today to a couple of people uh, who work in Leinster House, uh, and are, there is a concern, shall we say, within the on the not just the back benches of Finnafall and Finnegale, but shall we say with, within the, the 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 lobby fodder that the fact that this story has. Has, in a sense, leaked out into the broader discourse. And Michael D. Higgins's comment on this, for example, like weirdly, even though it's very supportive of the direction, is not considered to be helpful because what it has done, in a sense, has amplified the concerns which were written in the letter from the uh, the managers of the Catholic schools, but also there was, in fact, a letter of support written by the the uh, the, the Islamic uh, community and their schools. The LGBT organisations are blessed by the fact that those are both religious organisations, which gives them a very easy way to push back against them. I would say they're deeply concerned that anything non-religious involved in education might come out on this because then they'll have to talk about it. And while they have a general line, which has proved very effective in most of their media work, which is just the, you know, this is just about kindness and empathy, and let's never be asked about any, you know, of the consequences of what we're asking. The more people start clamoring about it, the more chance you have that someone goes, yes, but what about these horrible consequences that other countries have seen in relation to certain things involving young children and surgical interventions, and they don't want to have that conversation. Well, obviously, the the report on the Tavistock has created problems. Uh, There's an awareness of that in the public. There's a book that has just been published, which is an account of what happened in the Tavistock, and Charlie Flanagan has been talking about that and tweeting about it, which has caused a certain amount of crime. But what I was saying with these couple of people were saying to me was that there was a worry at the political level, that on this subject, they may have not read the room, to use that current cliche we all seem to be using. Michal and Leo have come out strong in support of it. The president's come out, Roderick O'Gorman, and so the, the government, generally speaking. But there's a, a sense that on this one, they may not have read the room right, that for whatever reasons, they just, they seem to be a bit disconnected from the white the concerns and I would say the conference slash the confusion of parents and people with small children, either in schools or maybe about to go to school, a little bit like maybe the issue around uh, immigration, migrants, asylum seekers, etc. The sense that they haven't quite read the room of what the temperature in the country is really like on this subject. But even more so than the, the migrant story, but this one, that they don't get it. And that as this thing is spreading out and, shall we say, leaking into the public discourse, there's more of a discussion. And there have been, and this is problematic again politically, you said, obviously, they're blessed if it's just Catholics and Muslims, religious types. Well, they're the people on the wrong side of history. But what one person said to me was that that may indeed be the problem, that they just assume that anything that they say is on the wrong side of history, that they have been 
they were defeated on divorce, they were defeated on gay marriage, they were defeated on a whole raft of all the stuff. They're just on the wrong side of history. And this is just one another one of those subjects. And when push comes to shove, then it'll turn out that they were just this sort of nostalgic minority voice hearkening back to uh, a more religious, more restrictive, more conservative country. And therefore, they just put their money on that horse. But in this case, there are other voices, Gary. There are non-religious voices, both professional, but also in the media, that are talking about this and aren't happy. And that is politically going to be much more difficult for them because now this particular cat is out of the bag. Now, the Gender Eviction Act was passed without a division. The review was done in camera, if I remember it, which seemed to me, irrespective of the subject matter, a bizarre thing to do in the democracy. But this particular part, this particular cat out in that litter is out of the bag now, and I don't know how they can get it back in the bag. I don't know how they can go forward in the way that they would have liked to. I remember conversations I've had with people where they were saying, they were talking about the transgender stuff and how it would be women's sports that would put a lot of people back up about this. And I was saying, no, it won't be the women's sport because that, that'll go whatever. It'll annoy a certain amount of people and certain people will will will, will fall out um, over it. Where this is going to go wrong is where it relates to children because that is where the potential for harm is greatest. And also... It's where people have the most concerns. You can start talking about the long-term political ramifications of certain pieces of legislation, certain political psychologies, but that's not what will happen here. What we're seeing when we talk to people, and not just religious people, in fact, most of them are not religious because most people in Ireland are not strongly religious at this point, is a concern about what is going on in schools and what it means for people's children, not as this theoretical all the children in the country, they're specific children. And if people think that something is being promoted that will harm their children, that would politically, Michael, be uh, not great for whoever is seen to be pushing it. Because we talk about how people vote based on their wealth and how well they feel they're doing. That's partially true. People vote on how they are feeling about things, on how they are, you know, what they have personally experienced. It is very difficult to see what could change how people feel about themselves rather than a perception that something is a threat to their child. And that, I think, is why we saw this um, one area that, that people have really not wanted to discuss. And actually, it, it comes up in this report, not directly, but I think this is a clear reference. It says that many... Uh, Activists believe that public campaigning has been detrimental to progress, as much of the general public is not well informed about trans issues, and therefore misinterpretations can arise. I think they're referencing to the idea of social contagion. Now, social contagion is a perfectly accepted sociological and psychological theory. It's not universally accepted. There are many complaints with it, mostly that it's very vague, as in it says this happens, but it doesn't really lay out sort of explicit uh, ways that things happen or how they can be um, changed. But, and we in the media accept it in a load of other areas. The most notable is suicide. There are incredible amounts of restrictions on how media organizations can report suicide because of a fear of contagion. That if you start reporting on suicides in particular ways, 
other people will kill themselves. Effectively, social contagion is the idea in relation to transgenderism. Um, it's specific to, to rapid onset gender dysphoria. But in general, it is simply the idea that the systems around you, whether they're social systems, cultural systems, peer systems, can influence you to take on certain behavior or certain emotions that you would not otherwise have given rise to. That is the concern. And that, I think, is parents' concern. And it is absolutely not something that the activists or politicians want to talk about. They want to delegitimize it and just push it entirely away. On RTE News, when they were covering this, they had on their education correspondent, Emma O'Kelly. And I wrote an article based on what she said, because in a couple of four minutes, or sorry, in a couple of minutes, she said, I think, three things that were outright false and one thing which was borderline. But she specifically said that the idea of social contagion had been debunked by a particular study. It was never debunked. Uh, the study had not even been by the AAP, who is the American Association of Pediatrics, who are very, very well respected. And then I wrote to RT Michael and I said, listen, your person made these claims. They were wrong. They also wrote an article from an anonymous source, which makes exactly the same claim that she had made, despite the fact that claim was wrong. So I asked two questions. What are you going to do about this? And what steps did you take to verify that that source is an actual person? Because it's a little bit weird that a journalist would make a false claim and an anonymous source would make exactly that same claim. Not to suggest anything, Michael, but, you know, Caesar's wife. You want to be absolutely sure. Ortiz's response to being informed that one of their journalists had made multiple false statements on air, which had gone uncorrected, and had written a piece that, you know, I think we now have to ask that question, was that they would not comment on editorial matters. So basically, an RTE correspondent was able to go on air, speak multiple falsehoods, and they will never be corrected. It seems extraordinary that this is the national broadcaster, the most trusted source of news in the country, license fee funded and that's the response it seems to be at, at the very least shall we say inadequate you know i don't think even necessarily it's the case simply if parents be worried about harm because i think yeah, there are parents who, but i think even parents who are more sympathetic to the idea of some kind of progressive education on this subject say be be treated at some stage in schools, are say are looking at some of the suggestions and some of the books that are on say on the reading list recommended for four year or five year olds and whatever. I, their response is, "This is not appropriate for for primary schools. It's, it, it's not a question that we think that this particular sub this subset of this subject should not be, but this is not appropriate at all for these children. These children should not be exposed to this issue." They are not ready for it. This is too complicated. This is too difficult. This is too confusing. Also, it's just, this is not the place. What? And they're going back to the question, why are you doing this? What's the purpose of this? Why, how, where, why did you come up with this idea in the first place? Why did you think this was a necessary or good idea? That maybe this is something for secondary schools, maybe for older students or whatever, but this is just completely inappropriate. The idea... If you talk to children about having even the idea of a gender identity, I just I I as a grown man I, I find it 
a, a, a difficult concept to, to get a hold of. The idea that we have something called a gender identity, as opposed to, say, sexual attraction towards one sex or another sex, or that you have proclivities or fetishes or whatever, but that I have a gender identity. I find it's a difficult idea to get my head around, and I'm not sure that I'm convinced that such a thing exists at all. But leaving that, but now you're going to talk to to six and seven year old and eight year old children about their gender identity, non-binary. I I don't understand non-binary, but genuinely, I mean, as a as a as a, I think it's a null set in a sense. But you're going to explain non-binary to the to, to seven year old children. Why? What is the purpose of this? The CPSMA, in their what I've seen of their letter, did note as an alternative to teaching you know, anything about this that they thought went over the line, would be simply to teach children that they should respect other children regardless of their circumstances. Which would seem to be more in line with um, where I would imagine most parents will fall. And I think you're right. Like There, there is a question of what is the actual point of a school what what is it right for a school to do where can it socialize where can it do these things and where should it be left entirely to the parents and my concern as i said with stuff like this is that it is passed off as neutral objective information backed by respectable people when in fact this is an ideology these are not facts these are opinions and i think in a lot of this there has been a very active attempt to enshrine particular opinions, both in legislation and things like this, so that effectively one can win by default. It doesn't matter if you win the political arguments if they have ensured that particular shape will be given to the views of children, because eventually that means you win. Now, having said that, the practical effect of this is something the Catholic Church can attest to at length. It doesn't matter what you control or what you write or what you pass if you can't actually implement. Sorry, Guy, before we finish up, can I have a small rant about the president? Please, Michael, do. Now, regular listeners to the podcast will know that I don't have as lofty and elevated opinion of the president that I should have of the man who is the elected tribune of the people. It's a tedious time yet again, say it. He has no business getting involved in this. He has no business as president in getting involved in the minutiae of Department of Education curriculum policy. He is so, also, he is such a lightweight, he is such a Potemkin intellectual. The way schools quote, should provide, quote, basic information regarding sexuality in the fullest sense. Now, this man is a poet, Gary, so he's a master of language, and poetry demands the capacity to understand the power and the weight of each word. You compress meaning from what somebody else would take a novel of 500 pages to say the poet has to say in 15 or 16 lines. So he's obviously, and a very fine poet, as we all know, I have an extremely high opinion of poetry. Can you explain to me what that, said, that, that means? Basic information regarding sexuality in the fullest sense. 
How can you do that? How is it possible to be both basic and sexuality in the fullest sense? I don't know what that means. Now, I think that's the point, of course, that we don't know what it means. But we all know at the same time, we actually do know what it means. There is a, a quote, need for appropriate dissemination for those responsible for providing education, the requirement for respect to be shown, the right for it to be experienced should be available to all. And it is necessary that it be taught, encouraged, and its absence sanctioned. He is hollowing, he has, in this, he has hollowed out the, 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 the it seems to me, no, I know that most people think he's a great chap, and isn't he lovely, our little president, and the dogs, we all love the dogs. And we love the way the dogs like him and he likes the dogs. And this is fantastic. He's followed out this presidency in a way that, and, and, and you and I, I know, we don't like whataboutery, but of course, but what about if this had been Peter Casey saying the opposite about some other subject, which was not in tune with the uh, progressive mores of the mainstream media? Would, would we have had this sense of, oh, well, he's you know, perfectly entitled, excuse me, to speak to this issue as president? He's not. He is, for someone who is supposed to have an understanding of things like symbol and mythos, he has so completely misunderstood the role of what it is to be president. People say the president, oh, it's just, it's a, the president is a, function, is a ceremonial office. What they mean is the, the presidency is merely a ceremonial office. The problem with it is that the presidency is ceremonial ultimately until you get to the moment when it isn't. When the president is, as I've said before in this podcast, the president is like the tribune of the plebs, that last stopgap between the power of the executive and, and, and the citizenry. He is the defender of the constitution and the defender of the rights of the people. And he is that last, the last. But if you politicize him, and if you politicize his role or her role, because we have had important and significant female presidents. Then when it comes, the problem is, Gary, potentially, and I know people say this is just doomsday nonsense, but there you go. If we ever did get to a point where there was actually a serious political problem, he has politic so politicized the role of the presidency that that sense of the president being above politics, being above the fray, being this judicious arbiter who's, who will only intervene in the most direct, it's gone just gone. Uh, we, we saw the experience of many, many, many decades of, the, of Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth in, in the United Kingdom, and her excruciating attention to that sense that she would not be a political figure. She could not be a political figure because for her to be so would be dangerous to the Constitution and to her role, and ultimately to the, and to, to the form of democracy enjoyed by the, the citizens of the United Kingdom. Ah, he just, oh, it's, he, he just infuriates me. And how, how little pushback is there? Have you seen any pushback in the media about this? I mean, not from people on Twitter, but actually people writing in newspapers or speaking on the television or on the radio, people with megaphones. He just gets away with it constantly. Well, is this the problem politically when they ignored him when he started doing it? And they allowed him to do it. Now it's just kind of like, you know, it's priced in. 
It's expected. There was a point at which they could have put Mr. Higgins back in his box. But that point has long gone. And you were talking about what people would say if it was Peter Casey saying this, whatever he wanted and stepping over the line like this. He would be condemned absolutely and utterly and condemned both for what he was saying and for overstepping what should be the constitutional limitations on him, Michael. And the the initial reaction there might be to say that those people are hypocrites. I would actually argue they're not. I don't think they believe that Michael D's right to do something is universal, that it should be extended to anyone else in the position or anyone saying things they don't like. It is purely an operative belief. He is doing what they want, therefore they will support him in whatever he does. You could probably write, that does not cheer me up, Ali, but I think you're right. Well, we constantly have these sort of debates about hypocrisy and things like that, and it's a useful political tool sometimes to use against it. But the left in Ireland have no shame about it because they don't want you to have those rights to begin with. They don't believe you'll make good use of them. So they're not hypocrites, which is good because the hypocrisy would be the worst thing. Gary, I'm not saying that necessarily either you or I endorse the notion of rights as a, shall we say, as a philosophical theory of morality. No. But we, we know from fairly explicit experience that the progressive left in Ireland doesn't really believe in rights. If we look at the organisations that are there, in theory, to defend the civil liberties of the citizenry here, it's obvious and explicit they don't really believe in fundamental rights because they're perfectly happy to see those rights eroded as long as they're being eroded in the right direction. Mm. Actually, there was a fun little one with the ICL there uh, the other day. They put up and had to delete a tweet about the upcoming referendum because they said, Michael, and I quote, Did you know that according to our constitution, a woman's place is in the home? No. <laughs> Which, for those of you who have yeah, cared even... to read the constitution, is not what the constitution actually said. Would you not? Would you not? bother. I mean, the thing about the referendum, which just seems to me to be a bizarre one, I'd be curious. I wouldn't put I wouldn't put my house on its mortgage on the referendum passing. Not because I think the, the thing itself is terribly controversial, but first of all, I think there's very often people, it'll be very low turnout, and I think that very often people use these things, potentially can use it to give the government a kicking if they don't like what's going on, and they like to give the kicking anyway, the same way as they might use local or European elections, more so than they will use a general election. But the people who are motivated to come out to vote are are perhaps more likely to be the people who are really pissed off. But that kind of thing is actually going to be useful because the usual suspects, the usual suspects, if the usual suspects come out and oppose the referendum, then I think that will just give the oxygen needed to drive the referendum through. But if some unsuspectable kind of character was to arrive and say, do you know what, all this does is give some kind of a nod in the direction of women who actually do contribute disproportionately to life in the home, whose labour and effort is the sink, is, is the largest part of the existence of home life. It doesn't have any practical uh, outcomes because and I've always thought it was curious that nobody actually tried to push any government on this to say, well, it says the government shall endeavour not 
to to ensure that women, if they don't want to, won't have to work outside the home. But nobody's ever actually tried to force the government to do that, even though there's this constitutional guarantee. But the word endeavour there does take away some of the power, I suppose, from it. I I actually, Michael, I have what I think is a winning strategy for this referendum. We should come out in support of it. Okay, go on. On this basis, Michael, just the cold-hearted finances of it. Do you know, Michael, do you know, Michael, that when child benefit was brought in, it was argued that it was a constitutional necessity? Would you like to guess under which article? Under this article, by any chance? Under this article. So I think we come out and support it on the basis that those women are just getting too much money from the state. And we can abolish the child child benefit on that point. I'll tell you, the most enthusiastic supporters of the expansion of the role of women in the workforce have been free market economists who regularly come out with pieces of analysis saying that if we increased the number of women who are active in the workforce by another 30 or 40 percent or whatever, we could increase GDP by 3 percent or 5 percent or whatever. And that we should be getting them all out there and we should be opening massive creches, industrial creches all over the country and get women out of the house and into the workforce. And we get GDP flying upwards. This is not, in a, this might not be a conservative position, more perhaps a liberal economic position, but it's certainly economic, the, the economists on ice have been pushing this all through the, twi- well, all through the 20th century, now into the 21st. And it is true. It, you, if you got more women, of course, it would increase GDP. It would. What I would question, actually, is the extent to which it would improve families' lives, that, not just in the immediate change in working practices, but also, you know, would you see inflationary pressure basically push it up until you're not really any better off and maybe worse off? But I think we should come out with that position, Michael. Just hear them from a direction they're never going to see coming. And then they have to sit there and say, yes, we agree with those right-wing free market lunatics. Um, which would be a new experience from what you said, though, about economists and business groups. Absolutely true. And also in no way hidden. It's just most people don't pay a lot of attention. But some of the Irish groups have been pretty explicit that this is what they want. They want more women in the workforce because it will drive down wages and it will give you know an increased pool of labor to pull from both of which are, are good for businesses so i just i just think this this is our time to shine michael now they're probably gonna they're probably gonna come out and change it to like people instead of woman but we need we need these conditions removed so that we can take away job benefit so okay that's what we're going to finish on the line which will be in the in the in the sunday in indo next week is um the right side comes out in favour of government's referendum to abolish child uh, child benefit. I'm just going to state this. If I do go ahead with this plan, which is highly unlikely because I value my, my not having to deal with the other media enough, I am going to use this as an archival recording afterwards to go, now, really, I wasn't serious. Unless we achieve it, in which case, Michael, I'll be like, called it. <laughs> we can all go to Dublin Castle and have a party. Anyway, on that note, I will wish the listeners a happy Sunday and a good week. And we shall be back next Sunday with even more lovely thoughts about how we can improve the state of the economy. All the best. <laughs>